Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. That's where we'll be this morning. But as you're turning there, uh, just a couple things. Uh, I want to let you know that uh, Pastor Jeremy and family are on vacation. And so I say that to ask you to, to pray for them. Uh, pray that this would be a time for Pastor Jeremy to minister to his family, uh, that they would have a, a little time of relaxation while they're there and fun. Um, so keep them in your prayers this week. But also, as John mentioned earlier, next Sunday, Eric Turner will be here preaching. Uh, he's in Lexington this morning preaching at our campus there. Uh, but as you know, we, we prayed for an unreached people group this morning. Uh, seven or eight years ago, Ashland adopted the people group in the Andes Mountains in a little village named Cordova, uh, where about eight years ago there were no believers there. Uh, so over the last eight years, uh, every person in that village has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and there is now a, a small church meeting there of a handful of believers, and much of that of the church meeting there is due to the ministry of Eric Turner, who has spent the last two years uh, in Village. He's a young man who had just graduated from the University of Kentucky, said he was going to give up two years of his life to go live high atop the Andes Mountains in a place where there's no electricity, no running water, uh, none of those amenities that we are so accustomed to. Uh, gave that up for two years and has ministered very effectively to the people in Cordova and has helped us plant a church there and will continue to minister over the next few years. So please be here uh, to hear Eric Turner preach next week and share about the work that God is doing uh, reaching the unreached, uh, especially in Peru. Well, this morning as we're in Acts chapter 17, uh, let's stand together and read verses 29 through 31. Paul writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, very words of God, and he says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance... God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. God, as we study your word today, God, may it illuminate within us a passion to share your message to all we come in contact with. God, may it challenge us today uh, as we see this. God, teach us something new about yourself. Reveal yourself to us today. In the name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you heard about Jesus? This was the question that a young man uh, asked to a complete, complete stranger in a parking garage in Baltimore, Maryland. I had the opportunity uh, in early June to go to Baltimore before the Southern Baptist Convention and take part in a partnership of uh, five of the six Southern Baptist seminaries to engage the area of Baltimore in gospel conversations and evangelism before the churches and the convention got there. So what we would do is we would spend most of our morning in class talking about different, uh, different methods of evangelism, the theology behind it, uh, best practices. And then at night, we would go out uh, into Baltimore, different areas, and we would try to find people to share Jesus with. On one particular night, uh, this guy goes up to his group leader, and he says to him, he confesses, says, listen, I, I know all the practices we've learned uh, in class in the mornings. I'm very encouraged by the testimonies that, that are being shared uh, in, in class on the mornings, but I just really don't know how to start the conversation to take it somewhere spiritual. I know how to talk to people, but I don't know how to turn that conversation from from whatever we're talking about to spiritual matters without sounding awkward or cliche. I just, I don't know how to do it. So the group leader looked right at him and said, well, have you ever just tried asking, have you heard about Jesus? 
Well, as they're sharing this testimony that next morning in class, if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, we've studied all this theology. We've got all of these best practices. We've got way of the master. We've got evangelism explosion. We've got share Jesus without fear. We've got all of these great gospel tracts, all of these things. And you're just going to turn around and ask a complete stranger, have you heard about Jesus? Think, okay, that's not going to work. There's a reason we have all of these evangelistic methods. There's a reason we've done all of this. It can't work. It's far, far too simplistic. And not only that, but let's be honest, who really has the guts to stand before a stranger and just the first thing you say to them is, have you heard about Jesus? Well, those are my thoughts as I'm sitting there in class that morning hearing that testimony. And then we see that that was his reaction, was to just say, have you heard about Jesus? And we come to Acts 17, and we see here that Paul, one of the great evangelists, is waiting in Athens. He's stuck. He finds himself in in Athens. Um, He has just recently been attacked. He has been run out of the last two cities he has been to. He's been beaten by rods. He has been imprisoned. He has survived an earthquake in that prison. And he has been run from town to town to town, being chased out, people telling him, you cannot share that message in this town. You're turning the world upside down. And now he finds himself alone. He says here he's waiting on on Timothy and Silas to come to him in Athens. And so he's here alone, having gone through probably the most trying month that any of us would ever see. And as we think about that, you know, put yourself in Paul's shoes for just a minute. Like I say, you've just been run out of every town you've been to. And it's not a, hey, great, thanks for having you. Here's the door. No, it's get out. We don't want to see you around here anymore. You've got to leave. Not only that, but they welcomed him so much, they beat him with rods until he was almost dead. And now he's alone. He has nobody there to encourage him. Now, if that's us, we're probably going, it's time to get to the beach. I'm out of here. Or if we're really looking at it, we're going, you know, this whole missionary thing, I'm going to change my careers. You know, being a fisherman is starting to look really good right about now. Spending days out on the lake, catching fish, it's great. I'm doing that. And yet we're in, that's where we find Paul. He's standing there and he's alone. And so what does he do? He starts sightseeing in Athens. Sure, we'll take this little mini vacation while I'm waiting on, on Timothy and Silas. And so as he goes around, what does he see? It says in the previous verses that he's coming around and he's seeing that there's all these idols around Athens. There's all these different altars and he's walking about the marketplace and we're hearing all of these, these people talk. You know, Athens was one of the great uh, cultural centers of the ancient world. So people are coming from all over the world and they're sharing their thoughts about God. They're sharing their ideas. And yet we find ourselves in that exact situation every day with the culture and life bearing down on us, don't we? You know, we like to think it was just Paul who's in the marketplace, but every day we're there when we open up our Facebook account and we see one of our friends with his 115 pictures that he just posted of seeing Keith Urban in concert, talking about what a spiritual experience it was. He just felt so uplifted. You know, Keith Urban is the greatest guitar player and singer ever. Or when we walk into our break room at work, it's way too early to be thinking about anything. The burnt coffee's still sitting there, but that's all we've got, so we're going to suck it up and drink it. And there's those two coworkers we've got who never see eye-to-eye on anything, and for the 100th time, they're sitting there talking about how Obamacare won't work and why it won't work and why it's the worst idea ever. And we hear those things. Or we're at Thanksgiving, and there's our, our childless aunt and uncle sitting there giving us those judgmental looks 
as we're trying to help our kids get to their plate and get their, their food together. And they're being interrupted, telling their story about how they've taken their third vacation this year and just bought their new Corvette. And they're looking at us judgmentally. We find ourselves in, this, in those kinds of environments and moments every day. But what does Paul do? He doesn't just cower and just go back to the hotel, go back home and think, I'm not going around them again. He gets up and he gets to work. So as he's going around, he's talking to the people uh, in verses, was it 19? He's in, he has this invitation to come. These people have heard what he's saying. He's going around asking these people, seeing all this. He's like, have you heard about Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. Have you heard about him? And these people say, what is this babbler wishing to say? He's bringing these strange things to our ears. This babble of this man who was born of a virgin, who, who never sinned, never did anything wrong. Then he was killed. He was crucified. We know what that's like. We live in a Roman culture. But he got up out of the grave. I mean, he didn't stay dead. The Romans are professionals. They're really efficient at this. This doesn't happen. This guy's crazy. He's, he's babbling. And we're going to sound like we're babbling, too, when we share the message. It does sound a little weird, does it not? Think about it. A man dead, three days, gets up and walks out. So as Paul is going around, he's, he's asking people, have you heard about Jesus? He gets this unique opportunity to go to the Areopagus. Now, a couple of things about the Areopagus before we get into his message that he says about him. Uh, verse 21 says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The Areopagus was essentially the first open mic night at Starbucks. You go in and hear some good ideas, some just absolutely crazy, but ideas are just being traded around. And it says here that, that they're always looking for something new, the next fad, the next great idea to believe in. Now, thankfully, we're not like that. We're, we're, we're well above looking for the next fad, right? Clearly, we, we, we don't read, you know, as young parents, we don't, we don't look at the next book or the next blog or the next website and read all about baby-wise or attachment parenting, and then overnight we tell our spouse, hey, we're doing it all wrong. We've got to change everything. Now we're going to do this way and this and this and this and this. It's all wrong. And then next week we go, okay, we were doing it right, so we're going to go back to what we were doing. And clearly, we, we don't get online and we don't see everybody posting all these BuzzFeed quiz about what your favorite Disney character says about you. And so we have a sense of belonging to one another. We don't do that, right? We're the people of the church. We know where our foundation is. We don't look to BuzzFeed or we don't look to, to our favorite parenting blogs. We don't look for any of that for our foundation. We know where that is, right? We're the church. We, we, don't, we don't go to a church and go, you know, that music was just... You know, it's too traditional for me. You know, there are other instruments now than a pipe organ. You know, we've progressed hundreds of years past the pipe organ. We have other things now. And we don't go to church and go, I've never heard that song. I'm not going back to that one. Or we don't go to lunch and we don't say, man, that sermon sure was good. It didn't really challenge me or convict me. I liked that. It was good. <laughs> like that one. And clearly... Clearly around here, we, we don't go to our Bible fellowship groups. We don't go to BFG, and we don't sit down, and we go, all right, Glenn, I got it. Jesus, gospel, changes everything. Yeah, 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 okay, heard it. We've heard it for two years from you. Heard it from Pastor Jeremy. When are you guys going to preach something else? When can we get to the end times? We, we can move on now. We get Jesus. We get gospel. We get that it changes everything. But by Monday morning, the sermon is a distant memory. And we get in the car, we turn on our favorite song, 
we recite the lyrics, and we look to that to carry us to Friday so we can punch the clock, get home, and enjoy the weekend. We are indeed, in every way, a religious people. Not only are these people in the Areopagus looking for those next fads like us, but these people are smart people too. It tells us earlier that there were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers there. Now, these were two of the, the leading thought patterns of the day. So these are the ones who are coming up with these thoughts to tell other people. These are the ones that we look at. These people in this Areopagus, we go, we're just not smart enough to, to talk to them. You know, we, we need Pastor Jeremy to come in and talk to these guys. He, he's, he's smart. He knows what he's doing. Or we need Pastor David to come in and talk to these guys. We, we have no clue what to do with this. We, we look at them, and we look at the people in our culture, too, and we go, listen, okay, I'm going to be serious about evangelism. Jesus tells me, go share. Got it. I want to be obedient. I have to do that. So we go, okay, we got that person at work. They're pretty smart, so I need to immerse myself in, in evolutionary theory. I need to know about what Darwin's theory is, and I need to know about thermodynamics so I can counter-argue that. And then I need to know about Michael Behe and, and microbiology. I need to know all of this stuff. And Okay, so I got the evolution. Now I need the philosophy, tea, the philosophy too. I need to know Plato, Aristotle, uh, Rousseau, Descartes, uh, Hawking's, and Hitchens. I need to know all of them. Okay, so what if they don't care about that? What if then they're Muslim or Mormon? Or there's Jehovah's Witness. I need to know what they believe so I can counter-argue that. So we'll spend years in studies huddled up in a room while the world perishes around us and we're not engaging them because we're chasing an idol that we have to know something. So Paul looks at all these smart people, the ones that we're not smart enough to engage or so we think. But let's be honest. We look at this, we see Paul is here and we think, all right, you know what, Paul... We got our guy. Paul's a smart guy, right? You know, if, if you study the New Testament, you know Paul was a Pharisee. He was given the best education possible. So we're looking at it going, all right, Paul's a smart guy. I'm so glad he's here because he's got all that knowledge. So let's see what Paul says. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, just like us. For as I passed along and observed all the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So we look at this and we go, all right, Paul's setting him up. He's getting the introduction here. He's getting ready to start tearing him down, argument by argument by argument. He's going to go right through this. And he simply, simply looks at him and says, What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Essentially, he says, hey, you're right. There's somebody out there you don't know. You're trying to cover all of your bases. Have you heard about Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. This is the one you don't know what you're looking for. Have you heard about him? Paul, seriously? You have all of this education, all of these really smart people. They're going to hear you. They're always chasing after a new idea, right? We already looked at that. They're going to hear whatever you have to say. And you're going to start with, have you heard about Jesus? And just like me sitting in that classroom in Baltimore, we look at this and go, Paul, come on, man, here is your chance. You had the chance of a lifetime. You had the chance to stand up in the philosophical epicenter of the world, and you blew it. You just jumped right in and started talking about Jesus. Nobody's going to listen to you now. Jesus is weird. He's awkward. People don't want to hear about it. When they hear me talking about Jesus, they run the other way. People... 
You know, you're probably the people that, that get avoided at work because they go, I just don't want to go in that office because he's going to start talking about Jesus and he's going to invite me to church and I'm staying away from there. Paul, you blew it. You had the chance of a lifetime. This isn't going to work, Paul. You know, we, we look at it and go, that worked for the common folk. And a couple chapters before, we see that Paul has, has gone to a jailer, a blue-collar worker. And he said, have you heard about Jesus? And he, he looked at a woman in Philippi who was a homemaker, sold goods from her home. And he said, have you heard about Jesus? But let's be honest for a second. We don't even do that for them. We look at Jesus as something common folk could understand, but we even make excuses about them. We would have looked at that Philippian jailer and said, you know, he, he's, he's a pretty hardened guy. He's tough. He's made it through life on his own. He's not going to think that he needs help with anything or anybody from anyone. You know, this homemaker, she's got a great home. She's selling clothes in the city circle, and it's being bought. She has a great reputation. Jesus can't help her life. She's got it all together. Now, we may not say it that way, but when we fail to tell them what they're really missing in life is Jesus, that's exactly what we're telling them. We're telling them you've made it on your own. And so we think, all oh, these common folks, we make every excuse in the world we can to not share Jesus. Just as simple as, hey, have you heard about him? Let me tell you about Jesus. So Paul, before these smart people, we think, great, Paul, you've blown it. Let's see what else he has to say. Well, we'll, we'll track with him just for fun, just like the people in Areopagus are probably thinking. And so he looks at him and he says, This God that is unknown that I proclaim to you, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Okay, so look what he's saying to him there. Hey, we're sitting outside. You see everything around here? It didn't just show up one day. Somebody created that. He says, This God that you worship as unknown, the one I'm proclaiming to you, he's creator. Now, if there is a creator, which there is, and we are created, what does that mean? That means we're accountable to that creator, right? And so Paul is, is telling them, hey, there's a creator. You're accountable to him. Be ready for that. And then he also tells them that being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So here's another problem for us. Because as Paul is telling them this, and we're hearing it today, we have to stop and think, okay, God doesn't live in temples we make. He's not served by my hands. And Paul actually says, as though he needed anything. But how often do we look at God and say, hey, let me help you out with this. If I can do this, then you will bless me by as though he needed anything. This God spoke the very world into existence. You think there's something out there that he needs that he can't get? But see, that's what we do. You know, we laugh at the Athenians here for having this altar to the unknown God. We think, that's just crazy and superstitious. And, and then we, we look at it and we think, you know, we, we've been studying through numbers and we look and there's the golden calf that was built while Moses is on Mount Sinai face to face with God. And he comes down and we look at this and go, how silly do you have to be? You, man, okay, so here's man. We take materials that we found. We didn't make the materials, right? Okay, there's gold. We didn't make it. We see it. We pick it up. It came from somewhere. God created it. But we take it. 
we melt it down, we fashion a cow. So we found materials, right? We've made them into a shape we want. And then we set it up on an altar and we say, Oh, great mighty idol, we thank thee for thou hast made us. Now that just looks stupid. That's the great theological word for that. But what's worse is when we do the same thing, but we're not chasing after golden calves. We're chasing after a status or a paycheck or a house. God is not served by us, but we are served by him. Paul is setting them up to say, whatever it is you are seeking, God has it and more. And it's found in him, not in what your hands can do, for he is far greater than you could hope or think or conceive. So he goes on. So not only is God our creator, not only is he our creator, but he's our sustainer. It says, for those he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. How great is that? This God who created, he didn't just, you know, snap his fingers, there's the world, and step back. Everything is still in his hands. That ought to comfort us to know that, that there is a plan behind everything. We're not just floating around the world aimlessly. He created and he is sustaining. He is holding it all together for us and for his glory. It says in verse 26, so God is our creator, he's our sustainer. It says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Okay, we'll stop there. What else does that tell us about God? Not only is our He's, is he our creator? He is sustainer, but he's sovereign. He's in control. It says that he has made from one man every nation of mankind. It also lets us know that we all bear God's image. We, we all are part of God's family. It's been really interesting recently uh, for my wife and I. Many of you know there's been lots of families uh, in, in our church here who have started the foster care process. And so my wife and I recently accepted our first placement. Um, so they tell us the age of the kids, all that stuff. And so we get that, we get the folders, we find out when we're going to get them. And so we get the medical card and all the information. You know, we're new at this. We didn't think to ask. We didn't think it was a big deal. What are their names? You know, probably something we should have thought of. Uh, so we look at their names, and I look at my wife, and I go... I'm guessing they don't exactly look like us. Uh, these names don't sound like a traditional southern white name. Um, yeah, these, these are probably not going to look like us. But as we have these two little kids who look nothing like us, and we're going from store to store to store, you notice some people kind of, you know, look out the corner of their eyes like, how does, how is that working out? You got the, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. And the tendency in our lives as well, in our minds, we're in a, in, a, in a church who has a great adoption culture in the church, and we see that everyone is created in God's image, and we love everyone the same, no matter what they look like. But our tendency sometimes is to go, I don't know if that works just right. You know, I don't, how are they working together? Because surely that group of people is not like this group of people and they can't live in the same house. God here says, get over it. I made them all, and I made you too. And he moves on, and he says, 
to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is telling us here that though we think we elect leaders, though we think we control what's going on in the world, that he has a plan, that he has set up his boundaries and the dwelling places for mankind. It's in his hand. Now, most of the time we hear that and we go, I don't like that because that means I'm being controlled. Okay, well, we've got to look at it the other way because if I was in control, if I was sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue right now, would things look different? Yeah, they would, but would they be any better? Probably not. (laughs) Same thing if you were sitting there. But yet we'll sit there and we'll talk about the White House and Congress and everything they want to do and how they should do it differently and how they're all wrong, how we need to throw all of them out, we need to start over. And we say that, but that is a reflection where we look just like Adam and Eve did back in the garden and we say, God, I need your throne. I can run it better. How would it look if we were on God's throne? But God says here, hey, you don't have to worry about that. I'm in control. So when you think the world's falling apart, guess what? Even if it is, I'm in control. And guess what? If it does, I win in the end. So you can take comfort in that. I win in the end. It's okay. I got this. It's in my hands. Don't worry about it. Just follow me. Listen to me. Come to me. So Paul is telling them God is creator. God is sustainer. God is sovereign. And he tells us that God is all of these things in verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Now wait just a second. You're telling me that this this great God that we can't even fathom, he wants to be found? He, he, He wants us to find him and talk to him? This God who could kill us in an instant, wants us to find him? That God's scary. I don't know if I want to find him or not because of all that power. But he says that he has all of these things, creator, sustainer, sovereign, and he wants us to find him. But Paul goes on a little bit further, and he tells us, actually, you're looking for him anyways. And end of verse 27, he says, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Those two things that Paul just said, they're they're quotes from popular songs and poets back in the day uh, that these Greek uh, uh, Stoics would have known. It's just like our great poets have said, I've been to church and I've read the book. I know he's there, but I don't look. Near as often as I should, but his fingerprints are everywhere. Our great poet George Strait has said that. And there are countless other references where you can think of and think of song, TV, movie, where people are saying, hey, there's something bigger than me out there. I just don't know what it is or where it is. And then Paul says, I know you're looking. This is the God. Remember, this is him I proclaim to you. I know you're looking. Have you heard about Jesus? He says in verse 29, being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he's kind of summing up everything he's just said. He's saying, God is bigger than you think. And then he gives us a little troubling statement. He says, the times of ignorance, 
God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What? Times of ignorance. Okay, Paul, we, we told you. We've got it. You see, altar, unknown God. We're ignorant. We don't know. But you're telling us that we're accountable to that anyways? So Paul is saying here that, you know, the, the word is saying that we are God's offspring. And the times of ignorance God's overlooked. But now he commands all people. All people everywhere. The gospel is for everyone. But do we actually believe that? Who do we look at and we think, oh, yeah, they're Christians. And who do we look at and go, man, they just really need some Jesus. And who is it that we look at and we go, I think they're fine. We don't, they probably have Jesus already. I'm not going to tell them about him. The gospel is the great equalizer. It puts us all on even footing. It says we're all broken, we're all messed up, we all need Jesus. It's for all men, not just Western-minded, white, middle-class people. The gospel is for the Peruvian high in the Andes Mountain who's never heard of the name of Jesus. It's for the people who are impoverished, living in poverty in the ghetto in Baltimore and New Orleans and Chicago and New York and all over the world. It's for the philosophy professor, the engineer, the scientist, and the jailer, the shoe store clerk, the Walmart greeter. And for you, and for me. It's our only hope. The word here is telling us that we're called to a response. We're not ignorant anymore. Say, God overlooked those days. He had a plan for them too. But he's overlooked that now, and he's commanding us all to repent, to respond to this Jesus. When someone asks you a question, there's a response, right? Yes, no, I don't know. You know, something, you, you have to respond to that. So when we say, have you heard about Jesus? There's a response that has to happen. And Paul's warning us, there is a correct response to that as well. He commands all people everywhere to repent. But he tells us, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So, Paul, okay. You've given us this great argument. You've told us that there's a God. He's creator. He's sustainer. He's sovereign. And it's all for our good, right? Yes. Awesome. Got you, Paul. We like this guy. We're going to start dropping more stuff off at the altar to the unknown God. We like him. Now he's going to judge us? What are you talking about? But by what standard? If we're all being judged for something, we want to know, okay, what standard, right? We, we want to know. So that way we know just how much to do to pass the standard. So he says, verse 31, Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Okay, so we're being judged by a man. Could be good, could be guy, uh, bad. I'm a pretty good guy. I should be all right. And he says, And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now how many guys do we know that have risen from the dead? Anybody? Anybody got your best friend? You can call him up, say, hey, remember that time you were six feet under in the ground? Yeah, that was a good nap, wasn't it? We don't know anything about that. So what the word is telling us here is, hey, there is a standard, and his name is Jesus. And you know why he's the standard? Because he took the punishment you deserved. He bore it, and he got up out of the grave and walked out. So Paul looks at him, and he says, have you heard about Jesus, this guy who came back from the dead? 
And verse 32 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. It was Babel. That's exactly what was going on when he was in the marketplace earlier in the chapter when they said, this guy's crazy. But we want to hear more about this, but this guy's crazy. But notice something here. Yeah, they mocked a little bit, but Paul still went to them and said, have you heard about Jesus? More often than not, someone who doesn't believe the gospel, uh, someone who, who is not a Christian, they are more often offended by our silence than by our message. Think about it. You have the only words of hope in this world. And you're going to actively sit in silence and not tell somebody you know how they can be saved? Their biggest problem they will ever face. And you have the solution. And you're going to sit idly by. That's why when people hear our message, they look at it and go, why didn't you tell me sooner? Why did you not let me know this? And this question is not just for the unbeliever, by the way. This question is for every, every believer as well. You know, when we get up in the morning and we're, we slept in, the alarm clock didn't go off the way it was supposed to, our spouse drank the last cup of coffee and the kids are running around crazy and they had to go to work early, so now we got to take the kids to school. We go out and the car doesn't start. It starts raining as we're looking at it, trying to figure out what's going on. All of this is going wrong. It's going bad. We have to stop and ask ourselves, have I heard about Jesus? Because in this circumstance, we all have a tendency to look at that and go, this day could not get any worse. This day is awful. Why? Because it's not going the way we want it to. But all of those are problems. Yeah, clearly. You know, if the car doesn't start, you've got to get to work. You've got to figure that out. But that's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is that there's a, a debt that you owe to God. The Bible tells us that for the wages of sin is death. That's, that's what we deserve. The sin that we've committed before God, when we look at him and we say, we want your throne, we can run it better than you can. God says, no, you can't. And you've, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. And Jesus Christ has paid that debt for us. He walked along a perfect life. Do we not get that? A perfect life, never sinned, was hung on a tree, was mocked, was beaten, was flogged, and was dead in the ground for three days. Three days, no hope. The people that knew him best had given up. They went into hiding. And after three days, his eyes started to blink. He clenched his fists and stretched out his hands. He got up, he folded his grave clothes, and he walked out of the grave. And he said, hey, remember when I said life is in me? I am the way, the truth, and the life? Yeah, this is what I was talking about. So when everything falls apart, we have to ask ourselves, have I heard about Jesus? Car, pff, forget it. It's not going to last anyways. Eternity? That's what I'm looking for. And I've got Jesus. As we've said already, a response is demanded. You know, Paul goes through this argument, we look at it, and we go, man, I just, I don't know if I can do that. You know, we see the responses here that says, now when some heard the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. 
Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This subtle name drop right here is let Paul know, hey, this is not theory. This is not evangelistic theology. This is for people. We're not studying this to feel better about ourselves. This is for people who need this message, and we have to call them to a response when we share it. Now, I would be remiss to look at this and go, yeah, Paul's great, man. He's a great evangelist, but we can't do that because we've all tried that, right? We've all tried to share Jesus with somebody. So we're getting ready to, we start that conversation, and then they get a phone call and they go off, and we go, okay, well, Jesus, guess you didn't want me to share your gospel today. Okay, maybe, maybe tomorrow. So we fail, to, we fail to share it. Or maybe when we are sharing a message, we say something just foolish and stupid, so that night, we're driving home afterwards, we're banging our head on the steering wheel to stop, like, oh, why, 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 why did I say that? You know, here, here's a great hopeful statement for you. You're going to mess up. If you try to share Jesus, you're going to mess up. You're going to say something silly. You're not going to have the opportunity. But you know what? Jesus is a much better evangelist than us. It's his message we share anyways. And what were the last words that Jesus told us? He says, go and make disciples. So he's telling us, go, evangelize, share the gospel. And then he tells us, for I am sending you my helper. I'll be with you to the very ends of the age. This message that we share, the message of this Jesus, he has given us his very spirit to go and share. How amazing is that? Jesus, who could evangelize better than anyone there has ever been, looks at us and allows us to be part of this plan. Look, I'm messed up. I don't always say the things I'm supposed to. You know, I don't always have the thoughts clearly lined out to share Jesus, but yet he lets me be a part of sharing his story. He lets me be a part of, of bringing people to him. How awesome is that? And not only does he let me be a part of it, but he says, I will give you my spirit. It's like Tyler was saying earlier when he shared the testimony with us. And what he didn't tell you is earlier that day, he called me and said, man, I, I'm feeling kind of sick. I don't know if I can talk, so I'll just, I'll just, I'll go with you, but I, I probably won't say anything. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Let's go. I'm not two minutes in the conversation with this guy, and Tyler goes, well, actually, let me tell you about how Jesus da 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 And I just kind of look at him and it's like, so you're not saying anything? Okay, got it. And we go on, and, and he says, yeah, man, I don't know. Just like he told us, I, I've always heard it, but when you share, the Spirit is there. That's who's saying those words. The Spirit is provoking you to say those things. What a great comfort is that. We're going to fail, but Jesus says, I will give you my Spirit, the Helper. And we know that his word will win overall. So if you heard about Jesus, as God turns around, Sees this complete stranger in a parking garage. Hey, have you heard about Jesus? Guy turns, looks at him. Uh, no. Kind of going, why are you talking to me? This, this, this dude's weird. So he spends the next few minutes sharing with him what Jesus has done. Say, hey, we're all messed up. We're all sinners. We need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. He got up out of the grave. And if we confess him with our mouths and believe in our hearts that he is Lord. We will be saved for eternity. 
You know what I'm talking about? The kid looks at him, complete stranger. And he said, yeah, I want that Jesus. Prayed on the spot to receive Christ. And then he spent the rest of the night. This guy who they did not know, had never seen before, in a five-minute conversation, has believed the gospel. His eternity has changed. And now with this group of strangers, he goes, hey, I want to come with you all tonight. So now this guy, who had never heard about Jesus until he was asked, is in a parking garage, is walking around downtown Baltimore, going to other people, going, hey, have you heard about Jesus? I don't know much, but let me tell you what I do know. Hey, have you heard about Jesus? Hey, have you heard about Jesus? Have you? Let's pray.